0: Hi everyone, Anthony Fantano here, internet's busiest music nerd, and welcome to another episode of the Needle Drop Podcast, where we play you the audio of our best reviews of the week. In this episode, we are going to be going over the brand new records from Polish black metal exporters. Behemoth have a brand new record out, which is pretty great. Also, going to be talking about the new haunting singer songwriter record from contemporary folk artist Marissa Nadler for my crimes. Also taking on the brand new Sheck West album Mud Boy, a Travis Scott protege who is a new signee on Travis's Cactus Jack record label. He's got some bangers on his new LP. I'm going to be talking about the new 21 Pilots album, Trench. My views on this record may surprise you. I'm also going to be doing a few track reviews, one for the new Weezer song teasing toward the band's Black album, maybe their darkest record yet, who knows, and also doing a track review for the brand new song from Run the Jewels, which is slated for release on the brand new Venom soundtrack. That's what you're going to be looking forward to. Oh, and also I'm dropping some thoughts on the brand new collaborative project from Atlanta Auto Crooners little baby and gunna didn't didn't think it was particularly good so get ready for a, a negative review buckle in strap in get ready here we go Bam. and it's time for a review of the new behemoth album I love you at your darkest this is the 11th full length album from polish metal outfit behemoth it was one of my most anticipated albums of the year as i reviewed the band's last full-length lp the satanist as being one of the best metal albums of the decade the satanist was a brutal and grandiose take on blackened death metal which was birthed out of the fantastically heavy and blistering sound the band had developed up until that point the band's entire discography sees them fluidly switching back and forth between black metal and death metal and stylistically everywhere in between. Still though, The Satanist felt like an exciting new chapter for the band, not only because of its gorgeous atmosphere and extra layers of arranged instrumentation, the strings, the horns, which mixed very well with the punishing guitar riffs and drums throughout this thing, but also frontman Nurgle's vocals were sounding more bestial than ever. This thing essentially marks a really promising start to a third act for a band whose career already spanned two decades at this point, and so I've just been looking forward to see where the band takes it next especially since this album broke so much ground for the band, turned so many heads toward their music in general, and follow-ups to attention-grabbing albums can be hard, especially when taking the approach that Behemoth pretty much took on this new album which was to come out with The Satanist Part 2, which results in a mostly enjoyable but slightly awkward at points listen. Because it genuinely is tough at some points on this album to hear the band try to outdo themselves without really venturing too far outside of the sonic and compositional aesthetics of their last record. I mean, they certainly do their darndest by layering on more arranged instrumentation, bigger choral vocals too. There's even a spot at the start of the album where... We hear what sounds like a chilling kid's chorus. And a lot of these songs finish off with some pretty dramatic and extended instrumental passages, too. But a lot of this works against I Loved You in a few different ways. For one, no matter how many bells and whistles the band layers onto the tracks they have written on this album, it doesn't change that at their core, the writing is either not nearly as exciting as it was on The Satanist, or it's so close in style that I'm getting deja vu listening to it like on Wolves of Siberia, and save for the second half, Ecclesia Diabolia Catholica, which I'm sure I pronounced Beautifully. Both tracks to my ears pretty much sound like Satanist Leftovers, but again with more instrumental layers and detours, and while I don't mind the band getting more ambitious on the compositional front, what matters is ultimately what does it add to the track and the overall listening experience of the album. Do the instrumental bridges and detours in the second halves of these tracks weave them together into an overall listening experience, or see the band expanding into brand new territory? I mean, for the most part, Not really. The latter parts of We Are The Next 1,000 Years kind of sound like an extended post-metal interlude. Meanwhile, the instrumental detour of Crucifixion was not enough, just feels like instrumental blackened death metal filler. Meanwhile, Angelus 13 features one of the most painfully awkward instrumental interludes on the entire record, where these twangy acoustic arpeggios, a wild, out-of-control guitar solo, and some... Very insane drum fills, which are just never ending, all seem to be competing uh, furiously for attention in the mix, but they don't really come together in any complementary or cohesive fashion. They all just seem to be coexisting in a tone-deaf way on the same tempo, which is kind of unfortunate because I think this particular song has one of the best starts of any track here on this entire album. On top of it, I don't think the album ends in a very strong fashion with the two-minute track Coagula, which is this marching, building black metal instrumental piece with ascending horns and insane drums. Eventually, all the instrumentation syncs up, and it feels like this grand display of metal and orchestral instrumentation all thumping on the same notes. This could be a pretty sharp ending to a song, but for this entire album, it's a bit of a letdown because I don't think the performance here and the instrumental display is as grand and as Uh, Amazing on like a fireworks level as the band seems to think it is. It's a somewhat miniature finale. All that being said, though, even the worst moments on this album are pretty listenable. At least the performances and the production are still pretty fantastic. And I found at least half the tracks on this thing to be pretty great, whether it be the thrilling intro track or the song God Equals Dog, which sees the band moving in a very nice and dynamic direction with their sound. Appreciating the buildup with a pretty subtle introduction, subtle for Behemoth anyway, featuring some mystical guitar leads and bass, an off-kilter groove. Eventually, the band goes full throttle, busting right into the fire and brimstone with the grimy bass and the shrill guitar chords. Some freaky sound effects as well. When the band settles into the core guitar riffs and lead vocals, it's pretty thrilling. Some of the background chants and harmonious guitar passages are a really nice way to break up the speedier and more aggressive bits of the song. It adds a lot of body to the track, adds a lot of nice detail. And that mostly seems like it was the intention the band going into this album to take what they developed on their last record but deliver almost that same thing but with more detail more layers more harmony more instrumentation and on this track it just happens to be a moment where it pans out really well so well that i wouldn't mind hearing the band continue to road test this into the future it just needs to be taken into consideration that the core song ultimately is the most important thing to these tracks and we can't have instrumental detours on this album getting totally lost in the woods just for the sake of having a little compositional or instrumental variety. The song Bartzibel is another highlight on the album for me. Maybe the closest Behemoth has... Ever come to writing a ballad in their whole discography? Correct me if I'm wrong. It's definitely the mellowest song on this entire album, certainly the anthem of the album, with its chilling chanted background vocals and very rich guitar chords, its slow pace and its eerie atmosphere. Come to me, Bartzabel. It's hellish. It's dark. It's Ah, ah, scary. I would love to hear the band work tracks like this into future albums just to kind of break up the track listing, the flow, and. How the hey, Panto Critter. Despite my issues with some of the instrumental interludes on this album is the longest track on the entire record and one of the most gratifying too. The twists and turns the band takes listeners through on this track are actually pretty fantastic. The instrumental bridge didn't feel like it lost the momentum of the song or just went off into some random direction. It kept me on the edge of my seat from front Two back, and this song also reaches such a peak of volume and intensity, the vocals, the drums, the guitars, all the arranged instrumentation it 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 becomes head splitting rom five a also stuck out to me as being one of the better tracks here, but not by virtue of anything. Flashier, over-the-top. It's just a solid, straightforward barn burner. So there are quite a few great moments on this album, in my opinion, and overall I thought the thing was pretty good. Even if some of the songs on here felt marred by the band either overextending themselves or treading water that is just a little too close to where they were waiting with their last full-length album. That being said, though, as I mentioned earlier, the production and performances on this record are pretty great, and even a somewhat predictable album from Behemoth at this point in their career is is better than a lot of uh, <laughs> mediocre metal albums that I could be touching down on at any given time. I'm feeling a light to Decent 7. This 7, it's the number of the beats! beats. Before we move on to our next review in this episode of the podcast, I want to give a shout out to one of the sponsors of The Needle Drop, and that is the good people over at Ridge Wallet. If you hit up ridgewallet.com, that is R-I-D-G-E wallet.com slash FANTANO, and use promo code FANTANO, you will get 10% off your order for one of these nifty, fantastic, money-clipped, functional, compact, metal plated wallets that fit right in your front pocket. Get rid of the bulk of your old, disgusting, fat, junky, old, leathery wallet. Replace it with a ridge. Do yourself a favor. I've been rocking mine for months now. Love it. And I would love for you guys to do the same. Picking One Up supports the Fantano channel, the Needle Drop channel. And on to the next review. And it's time for a review of the new Marissa Nadler album, For My Crimes. This is the eighth full-length album from singer-songwriter Marissa Nadler. I've been aware of her work for a while, but it's only been until recently that she has turned me into a believer in her very wintry approach to contemporary folk music. I like her haunting and gentle voice. I like the refreshingly dark and luscious direction her music has gone in since switching over to Sacred Bones records. Her last full-length album was easily her most instrumentally dense record in a while, and one of my favorites in her discography. And with her latest record for Sacred Bones, Marissa Nadler continues on this dark path. With a pretty atmospheric and spacey sound bordering on gothic, a few times. But she takes a much different approach in instrumentation and writing on this new LP. For one, this is Nadler's shortest album in a while at 34 minutes. And while July and Strangers saw her embracing more instrumental layers, For My Crimes sees her stripping them back. Some songs on this thing don't really feature much more than a gently strummed guitar and some chilling background vocals and... Marissa Nadler's typical lead. Maybe there are a few ethereal tones hanging here and there throughout the track for a bit of embellishment, but that's it. Sometimes this record feels downright skeletal, and I think she's taking a simpler approach on the lyrical front of this album too, as some of the stories she tells on this album are surprisingly blunt. The closing track is a cute and funny goodbye to a car that she used to drive, explaining at one point that it took a bullet in the roof in New Haven, which is why they call it Gun Waving New Haven. And she's singing about removing her things from the car taking the plates off the blown engine over some throbbing strings and some plucky guitar lines and a really catchy hook one one nine six five seven in the engine blue the opener and title track on this thing sees Nadler singing from the standpoint of somebody who seems like they are about to be executed for some horrendous crime they committed at one point of the song Marissa telling the listener please don't Remember Me. It's it's quite sad, it's pretty dark, and some serious gothic country vibes also coming off this track, too. While the track is not that long, and there's not a whole lot of instrumental depth to it, I do have to say that I think the story and the tale, the concept, the narrative of the song, it does have a lot of impact. It does feel really strong. It is haunting. Other tracks on this record feel like Nadler is almost writing hits, but with kind of a nostalgic flair. Songs that sound like they could be placed in like an old-school Jukebox, but only if that jukebox Were the saddest Loneliest, most depressed jukebox In the world. Songs like I can't listen to Gene Clark Anymore Or Lover Release Me Or All Out of Catastrophes, which features some of my favorite lyrics on the entire record, which are pretty humorous. Uh, Marissa's not really known for her sense of humor in her music. She rarely trots it out, but I'm glad she did on this track because it worked pretty well. Saying at one point in the song that in his sleep her lover called her by another name and saying that that was the nicest thing he had ever said to her. There's something almost Johnny Cash ish about the track that I like a lot. Considering that, I should say that I think a lot of songs on this record could Actually go down pretty well with country fans If only they were laid out with Peppier instrumentation, but I don't know If you're a country fan, but you don't mind Some mellow music, you don't mind some music With an easygoing instrumental palette I think you'll dig on this Because personally, I don't really think these songs are Any less enjoyable in their current state Because in their current form, they're delivered Almost as if they are like a sad Little secret or something Nadler's instrumentation does get kind of thick Though on the track Blue Vapor With some droning electric guitars and It's a slow burner but moves at a steady pace. The guitars certainly propel the track. Nadler's dark vocal harmonies create a sense of urgency. If I'm reading into it correctly, the track seems to be about Nadler lusting after somebody in her head who she... Just can't get out of there. But the relationship she had with this person is pretty much over at this point and she's pretty much coming to terms with that. I think it's one of her strongest songs in a while despite the incredible instrumental simplicity. I also like the heavy drums and strings that come in toward the ending. Then there's the incredible bliss of the track Dream Dream Big in the Sky. Also digging on the quaint but sad folk number You're Only Harmless When You Sleep. Another moment on the album where she seems to be singing about a dysfunctional love where two partners seem to be at total polar opposites and there's some kind of irreparable damage to this relationship that uh Uh, they just can't seem to get past. And while I'm not as enamored with the tune, the lyrics on the track Flamethrower seem to go down this road as well, but hit even harder. Literally singing about this person faking his death and wanting him to burn, 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 burn. So while there are a lot of upsides to the simpler approach Nadler takes on this album, there are some cons to it too. The album overall is pretty scant. While I do find a lot of the tracks on this thing to be endearing, simultaneously I wonder if they're in could have been made greater if they were longer or had larger instrumentation on them. And again, speaking to the length of this album and these tracks, I think there are some cuts on here that have somewhat fizzled endings, like All Out of Catastrophes and Lover Release Me, which is unfortunate because I think these two songs have some of the greatest potential out of any tracks here, as the shortcomings of these tracks are partially made up for with their great lyrics, their straightforward delivery, their sense of humor, the the dark tone of the track. And I guess there are a few tunes on this album I don't really care for at all, like Are You Really Gonna Move to the South? I do enjoy the personal story that this track delivers, but the Chord progression, the vocal melody just seems really meandering and uninteresting, sort of like Marissa sacrifice the melody of the track so that she could kind of tell the story. The song Interlocking I found to have a similarly meandering quality as well, even though I do enjoy the drama in her voice. Overall, I thought this was a pretty enjoyable singer-songwriter album. For sure, Nadler's simple songwriting style and chilly vocal delivery, it's not going to be for everyone. But I happen to like it. I think it's pretty compelling. I think it's pretty beautiful. I think the simpler approach she takes on this album mostly pans out. Also, again, liking the gothic direction she's heading in on this one a little bit too. I'm feeling a light too decent seven on this one. Transition into the next review. And it is time for a review of the new she- Sheck Wes album, Mudboy. Welcome, everyone, to the new Sheck Wes album. You, m- you might be thinking, what the heck is a Sheck Wes? Well, Sheck Wes is a New York-based rapper, the latest signee to Travis Scott's Cactus Jack label. Dude has a few viral tracks out, like Live Sheck Wes, Die Sheck Wes, and Mo Bamba. He's had a pretty sudden rise to fame. I've gotten a lot of... Suggestions to check out his music and he seems to have a pretty eccentric delivery So my curiosity got the best of me had to talk about it. This thing is 14 tracks It's 49 minutes and it is easily one of the odder trap albums I've heard in a while and when I say trap I don't really mean in the traditional sense This album is not purely about drug dealing or anything like that rather Sheck is very much on the loud aggressive absurd and over-the-top hardcore wave that many rappers from the SoundCloud, floating up in the SoundCloud, have found themselves on. Sheck Wes is much more likely to attract the fan of a little pump than he is a T.I. So if you're gonna listen to Mudboy, it better be for the bangers, because that's much of what this album delivers. But that's not to say that Sheck Wes doesn't have his own weird way of, of going about bangers. For one, the instrumental tone of this album, I guess, is sort of grimy, a little dark, definitely making this album live up to its title with subterranean bass, a lot of very glossy, shimmering, eerie synthesizer leads. Some of these tracks are steeped in an ominous atmosphere, too. I mean, he's not the first guy to take a dark approach to this particular sound. A record like ASAP Ferg's Trap Lord certainly comes to mind, as I do find it bit of artistic overlap between this project and and that one in that they both feature vocalists who have a very masculine tone and a very wild demeanor, very kooky expressive voice, some strange singing, very blunt lyrics, and chilling instrumentals. As I said before, the bangers on this album really are the bread and the butter of the record, and there are some pretty good ones like the aforementioned hits Live Sheck West, Die Sheck West, which features a lot of strange plinky synth leads and a shouted infectious refrain. Live Sheck West, bitch, I'm dying Wes. Because when you live as a person, you oftentimes end up dying as that person too. And also get used to Sheck West referring to himself in the third person. He does it all the time. And while I know he's not the only rapper out there who does that on a regular basis in his songs, he, he just really seems to overstep that line to the point where he's he's constantly reminding me of it. Anyway, some of the gritty lyrics about Sheck Wes's upbringing in Harlem are pretty sharp. He definitely has more conviction when rapping about stuff like this than he does when other rappers are maybe spinning bars about what their dick goes in or what their money is spent on, which also goes for Sheck Wes himself when he's kind of doing that same thing. The song Mobamba is is not a bad banger either. It's a ridiculous track where Wes finds himself with this elongated flow, really singing out these extended notes on a quirky, somewhat overdriven instrumental. Seems really off the cuff, seems raw as hell, but his delivery is kind of electrifying. And there are a number of tracks on this album just like this that don't seem as detailed or as preconceived or <laughs> as as written. It just seems like Wes is running off pure momentum. Tracks like Kyrie or... Gmail, where he goes off on a random diatribe on why he says the word so many times in his songs because I I guess it just gives him that nice angry feeling. That being said, though, I do want to mention there are ad libs all over this record. Uh, Sheck really does love his ad libs, uh, especially Mud Boy, which is the weirdest, quietest, saddest ad lib I think I've heard all year. And there's also the song Danimals, which couldn't be more random, with Sheck essentially rapping but also talking about yogurt, Dave Chappelle, Family Guy references. This track is so casual, he's he's pretty much just dicking around at this point. And it's kind of fun, but it, am I dying to come back to it anytime soon? Not not necessarily. The bangers continue on tracks like Chippy Chippy and Wanted, as well as the antisocial and paranoid f- everybody. Then there are some moodier numbers on the album that I think are pretty decent, where he works in some of his personal struggles or trials, like growing up as a young man in New York City with roots in Senegal. On the chilling Never Lost, he talks about all the places his talent and efforts have taken him. He also raps about his cousins kind of rubbing off on him with their bad behavior and his mother threatening to send him back, which she actually does on the track Where Shek finds himself back in Senegal with no ID, no passport, he's stuck there, he has to reconnect with a strange family, he ends up adapting, making his way, breaks into a verse of Wolof in the second half of the track that's pretty impressive. If more tracks on the album were this focused and spoke to Shek's personal experiences on top of that emphasize what makes him special and unique as a rapper, this would be a much better record. Because while Sheck does have a lot of personality, and I mean a lot on this album, to the point where it kind of overcomes the very samey, somewhat generic production and the lack of coherent songwriting, the lack of coherent verses. There are tracks on this album that I enjoy purely for Sheck's energy as well as his perspective. There's great potential on Mudboy, but it's all in the raw. Barely any of it is refined or groomed or honed in. And the barely existent songwriting and the so-so beats aren't exactly bringing it out either. And while Mudboy is a decent start, if Sheck West keeps putting out material at this quality level, he could disappear in the next few years because that's how long it's going to take to get another rapper on the mic who sounds as crazy, if not crazier, and saying things that are as ridiculous, if not ridiculouser, and most likely with better production. But I don't want to see that. Hopefully Sheck comes through with something a bit more thoughtful and potent and mature next time around. Uh, This is fun for now, but this is not very long term. Uh, and, and not just because I think the tone of the album is silly or that Sheck is too over the top. For example, Little Pump is pretty silly. He's pretty over the top, but he's got bolder production. He's got stronger choruses. And I think Sheck could be a way more appealing artist if he had that going for him. I'm feeling a light to decent six on this thing. Transition into the next review. And it's time for a review of the new 21 Pilots album, Trench. This is the newest full-length album from music duo Tyler Joseph and Josh Dunn, 21 Pilots. They've been at it for almost a decade under this name, and up until this point, I haven't really... Taken the project all that seriously. Their breakout album Vessel didn't really do all that much for me, and their following album Blurry Face in 2015 didn't sit too well with me either. I thought the album's basic blend of rock and pop and hip hop and electronic music were a radio friendly watering down of bolder and more interesting sounds across the popular music spectrum. Also, take into account the duo's typically melodramatic and twee instrumentation and songwriting, with a side of gentrified reggae. And th- th- this is just not for me. Even though Blurry Face was far from the worst thing I'd ever heard, 21 Pilots were not really a group I anticipated would. Come out with a record I enjoyed anytime soon. But the teaser tracks to Trench began to make that feel like a real possibility. The very moody My Blood was not a tune that blew me away at first, but I was pretty impressed with the instrumental and in the production on this one, with the song's grimy bassline and super crisp drums. Then they do a smooth transition into this series of disco beats with glistening atmospheric synthesizers on the hook. It was a nice touch. It was pretty sweet. Then there's the song Levitate, which legitimately features some of the best production I've heard all year. It's a track that features some super tight drum loops, stuttering synth samples flying in every direction. The track aesthetically almost feels like something off of a Battles album. Then what comes is easily one of the most compelling verses from Tyler Joseph that I've heard so far in sampling 21 Pilots music. It's basically a super wordy critique on our culture of saturation and celebrity. I just wish it was longer. Not only because the track approached, which is one of the most substantial topics of any song on this album, but also because Tyler's flow on this track is great. I would actually say his rapping, which on previous records I didn't think was all that good, has gotten much better on Trench, his overall delivery sounding much smoother and more confident. So as a result of those tracks, I did go into this new album looking forward to hearing a potentially better 21 Pilots, with a more mature and tasteful take on the duo sound so far. And keep in mind what I'm saying there, version of the duo sound so far because I don't think to make a great record... Twenty-One Pilots need to completely overhaul their sound. I like the fact that they make pop music. I just happen to think they could have been doing it better, and Trench is that better album. In fact, I think Trench is their best album, and by a large margin. On Trench, Twenty-One Pilots cover their usual genre bases, but they do so with a lot more attention to detail, instrumental depth, and immaculate production. This is a more vibrant, a moodier, a sterner, a grittier Twenty-One Pilots. The lyrics every once in a while still come off pretty simplistic, but it does contribute to a lot of these songs being as instantaneous and catchy and as sticky as they are. Plus, there's a lot of lore behind the lyrics of 21 Pilots that I haven't really appreciated up until this point, and Trench sees the duo diving into that lore more deeply than ever, with some of the lyrics and perspectives on this album being tied to a fictional character by the name of Clancy, who lives in this place called Dima, and there's more information about this place that you can read if you follow the various easter eggs and shreds of of cryptic information the band has peppered around online. But long story short, Dima is a place that Clancy used to hold in high regard as a child, but as he's grown older, he sees it now as almost like a system that he is trapped inside of. He's grown disillusioned with it, and... This could be an allegory for a few different things. Maybe either religion, as there are quite a few songs on this album that do deal in God and an afterlife and faith, or maybe it's fame, as there are quite a few tracks here where it seems like... Tyler is reflecting on 21 Pilots' popularity and mainstream culture. Or maybe this whole thing is set up by Tyler to explore some personal, political, or social issues. As some of the songs and imagery on this record do take a somewhat revolutionary tone. I'm not totally sure about any of these options and I don't really think right now at this point there is a definitive way to be. But all of this is definitely a vehicle for something. As there are tracks that dive more deeply into the narrative of this world than others, like the song Nico and the Niners, whose lyrics are about the people in power positions in this fictional place. Or the song Bandito where Tyler seems to be portraying himself as somebody who is in like the underworld of this land or who is uh, I don't know, almost like a resistance type character possibly, I don't know. There's also a lyrical point on this track that I think is pretty pivotal where he talks about having created this world in order to feel some control and he can destroy it if he wants. So maybe all of this has been drawn up just so Tyler can sing about his personal experiences and ideas without writing or delivering from such a direct or egocentric place. And I'm sure the audience is meant to project their own feelings onto this narrative blueprint too, as there are quite a few outsider, underdog, free-thinker type tropes that I think a lot of listeners will gravitate toward. But even though the narrative elements of Trench are pretty cool, I wouldn't say they are 100% required to understand every facet of in order to enjoy this record. Because if this album is anything, it is a consistently catchy and thrilling set of songs. From the Roaring Opener Jumpsuit whose bass riffs and drum beats sound like something out of a Death From Above 1979 song, which transitions into these eerie verses, later some ringing siren synths, some dubby echo effects too. The sound of this track is heavy and powerful. It's gargantuan. It's crushing. And I love the way the band kind of pulls back instrumentally too on the bridge and reveals these cute, shy little lead vocals that sound like something out of a Postal Service song. Then they bring it back for a mega heavy finish. It's a good structure. The band structures and writes some good tracks. They're very meticulously pulled together, and yet they have a nice visceral vibe to them. The song Morph is a really nice blend of pop and hip-hop, with a lot of the song's lyrics dealing in death, mortality, what comes after, and also, I guess, morphing into someone else, a bit of an identity crisis. I haven't quite figured out how all the themes on this track connect, but I do love the mix of instrumental palettes on this song quite a bit, as the hooks on this thing have kind of a glammy and very atmospheric tone to them. Meanwhile, the verses feature some harder beats and some soulful, jazzy instrumentation. The song Chlorine features one of the most addictive hooks on the entire album, which is kind of funny considering the track seems to be about chemical dependency and mood alteration too. Zip it on straight chlorine. I love every bit of this track to those chunky hooks to the psychedelic dreamy outro. The whole first leg of this album is pretty much fire, and the hits keep coming deeper into the record with only a few tracks I would call minor missteps. The song Smithereens is kind of a cute and quaint, tune of Love and Devotion, dedicated, of course, to Tyler's significant other. The sound of this track isn't as wondrous as many of the other songs on here are. However, I think it's slightly forgivable in some of the tune's hilarious meta observations, singing about how he had to put a song like this on the record. I'm also not super crazy about the track Cut My Lip, given that it is 21 Pilots and their past records. Of course, they cannot help but do a, a weird updated reggae number at some point on the album. And yeah, it's it's kind of just watered down pop reggae with a rock steady beat and a piano with a, an emphasis on the upbeat, some dubby effects too. But in the duo's defense, this is easily one of the best tracks they've done that is in this vein. So I'm, I'm actually not even that bothered by it. Really the weakest thing about this track is the tune because the production it, is pretty fire. The song Bandito, even though I do like lyrically what the track is doing and the very pretty airy instrumental finish, Uh, There are some points, especially in the First leg, that do get a bit drab. And the Closer on the album, even though it does a good job Of bringing things back to the Clancy, Dima narrative they set Out for this record, I do wish It was a bigger finish and was A little bit less of a cliffhanger uh, Because it's like I'm being given a To be continued for a story that, That didn't really get that strong of a start To begin with. Still, all that being said Though, I loved a number of songs to come after The halfway point of this LP. Pet Cheetah is great, a track that very much seems to be a meditation on fame, fans, and Tyler's creative process, with multiple musical and instrumental shifts across the song which are super creative. The song Hype sounds instrumentally unique compared to every other song here because it it feels like a 90s Britpop throwback to me. It's like a futuristic Oasis song. I also kind of dig how Tyler is lyrically getting into his mental demons and talking about his ability to get through them has very much to do with his friends, his support system, the people who are around him, which I think is kind of an important takeaway for a lot of people who get a lot of uh, emotional catharsis out of 21 Pilots music. And as long as we're talking about throwing it back to the 90s, uh, let's discuss the song Legend, which for whatever reason, there are a few spots where the vocal melody resembles very much that of the hook on Everclear's I'll, I'll Buy You a New Life. I will buy you a garden where your flowers can bloom. I also like style stylistically how he's pulling together very tastefully some elements of soul and pop and rock music. And one of the most standout songs topically on the entire record has to be Neon Gravestones, a track that's essentially about the glorification of an early death or suicide, with Tyler waxing poetic on how he could boost his image and his popularity if he killed himself. And this song is not just some kind of outside bitter critique, but also... An attempt by Tyler to filter through his own suicidal thoughts as well. Telling listeners that if he succumbs to these desires, if he loses to himself to not mourn him and just move on. So, yeah, surprisingly, I loved listening to this album. And I just felt like I got more out of it every time I returned back to it. Every time I started it at Jumpsuit all over again, I was picking up more stuff about it lyrically, instrumentally, and yet the album is so catchy, is so addictive, is so sweet, but also very dark and emotional and and personal too. I think the appeal of this record... Uh, runs in a lot of directions, which is certainly one of its best qualities. Something I think the band had in spades to a degree with how, in past efforts, they were able to incorporate so many genres of music into their songs. But this newfound maturity the duo are showing in their production, in their songwriting, in their lyrics is certainly creating a greater appeal for what they're doing, too. And before I finish this review, let me say one thing, and this this comment may not age well, and a lot of you may totally disagree with this, and if it does, that's fine. This very much comes from a personal place, but listening to this record, I very much had, like, some of the same sad, angsty, almost, like, teenage feelings that I used to back in the day when I used to listen to (laughs) Linkin Park's The Hybrid Theory. And I don't know, I feel like there's so many artistic parallels between Both of these groups in that they cover so many genre bases, and I feel like 21 Pilots speak to a very similar emotional palette uh, to Linkin Park as well, and and a very similar demographic of listeners, too, just in a a new generation. Again, maybe all of you totally disagree with that comparison, and if you do, that's fine. It's just my personal opinion there, just like everything in these reviews are anyway. So I'm pretty much feeling a decent two strong eight on this one. Before we get into the next review, I want to give a shout out to the good people over at Turntable Lab. If you hit up turntablelab.com slash the needle drop, all one word, the needle drop, you can find a page where you can purchase some colorful pressings of records that we have reviewed on this podcast and on our YouTube channels. We get kickback from it. Does not add to your overall price. Splurge on yourself a little bit, buy some music, support the artist, or buy a turntable some speakers, some audiophile gear, and uh, supports the show, supports the podcast. Let's keep it going. On to the next review. Thank you. Hey, buddy, did you hear the news? It's track review. It's time for a track review. I'm going to take on this brand new song and single from famed alternative rock band Weezer. They have a new record coming out, the Black Album. They are coming fresh off of what I felt was the worst album in their discography. And simultaneously, one of their biggest singles in a while, a cover of Toto's Africa. That's actually not that bad. But let's see if this, uh, this new single, this new track over here holds up. Maybe it'll be the band's next, next big hit. It's titled Can't Knock the Hustle. Uh, Hopefully it's better than some of the teaser tracks from Pacific Daydream Uh, Not exactly demanding here that the band always have to go back to their roots And do the same thing over and over and over I I feel like we're kind of past that opportunity at this point But that being said, as long as we're not uh, getting a bunch of cheap synthesized instrumentation And annoying millennial woe woes Uh, this track could be a marked improvement over (laughs) a lot of what the band uh, has been releasing over the past year or so. So let's give it a try. Weezer can't knock the hustle. Ba-bam. Okay. Uh, That's not a bad track. That's actually a pretty good track. It's certainly a better starter and an introduction for this new full length album than, again, what they were presenting on their last full length LP, uh, Pacific Daydream. So, kind of looking forward to the Black album now based off of this track. Now, w- what is the band doing here? What's the whole <laughs> theme behind this track? What's the idea? I mean, conceptually, it seems like Rivers is very much writing a very pointed song about his song craft, the efforts he's put in to keep Weezer on the map, his evolution in the commercial music industry, Uh, not merely as just an artist and a songwriter, but an entertainer and a performer. Uh, Talking about how his manager's slacking, so he has to move quick. He's lacking in natural gifts. He's an ugly motherfucker, but he works hella harder, and you can write a blog about it, is one of a few pretty smart, very self-aware metaverses throughout this thing. Uh, the choruses are pretty smooth. I love the hasta luego finish on the hooks on this thing. And the production, while it is synthetic and it's not really as rock-driven as some of Weezer's classic records, it does feel like a tried-and-true alternative 90s throwback, because this track read to me as one of many acts and songs to come out of the 90s, where you had these artists and groups who were up and coming at the time that were fusing elements of pop and soul and funk and rock and hip hop. I'm talking about artists like Beck and artists like Cake. And there were many more of them. There were a lot of artists doing it. And it's like Weezer is finally getting around <laughs> to doing this. It's it's funny because it, that was a pretty popular menagerie mode at the time. But Weezer was completely outside of all of it and doing their own nerd chic alternative rock thing. And now it's like they finally warmed up to the idea, uh, with David Sittick at, uh, the production helm on this new record, apparently. And it, it's actually sounding pretty good. Uh, it actually makes me wish that this was a sound and a risk that the band took earlier when this idea was maybe a tad more relevant because as catchy and as, smooth and as smartly produced as this track is with its groovy bass and its fun little guitar leads and its kind of rolling, cycling, funky hip-hop-inspired drumbeat, I'm sort of worried with uh, this aesthetic falling out of uh, mainstream trends entirely. Uh, Will this track just kind of fall on deaf ears? And will this be a record where Weezer is, in a way, appealing to older fans who might remember a time in (laughs) mainstream music history when this sound was like what the radio was primarily pumping out? Uh, That being said, though... Uh, Still, I think it's a good track I think it's a fun song I like the production I like River's lyrics on the track quite a bit It's definitely one of Weezer's uh, More knowing and self-aware tracks In a while And, um, yeah While it's not exactly an anthem or a rager It is pretty straightforward It is pretty catchy And um, can't, can't knock the hustle I can't knock the hustle I think it's a likable I think it's a good track And we are doing a track that is off of the (laughs) brand-new Venom soundtrack, which the the first song I heard from it was that awful Eminem song from Kamikaze, the very last track on his new record. Venom! 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 So, um, look, I'm not usually a, a big fan of these huge blockbuster Hollywood soundtracks that basically commission mediocre songs from a variety of different artists uh, to just kind of create a a hyper-relevant moment in the middle of the soundtrack uh, to to either amp up the movie or not be placed in the movie at all and just create a bit of promotion in the lead-up to the movie because there'll be people who are like, oh man, Run the Jewels. I love Run the Jewels. I'm gonna go check out Venom. Or uh, I love Venom, I'm going to check out this, this hip-hop group uh, You know, it's, it's a nice bit of cross-promotion But uh, w- when you see one of the best hardcore hip-hop outfits out there today Jumping on that bandwagon You, you get curious You want to try it out You want to give it a shot You want to see what's up I want to see what's up My curiosity has gotten the best of me So run the jewels Let's go the Royal Wee new single venom soundtrack let's give it a go. Let's see what's up. Is it good? Let's try it. Yeah. I'm a little on the fence with that. <laughs> what? Um uh, Okay, so what what are my thoughts on this track, essentially? I think that there are some smart thematic elements to the song that I think speak to the film in question, uh, the duplicity of Killer Mike and LP. Uh, some of what sounds like the, I, I'm guessing, sampled instrumentation placed into this track. It sounds like some really grand dark, sour, ominous, orchestral big blockbuster movie soundtrack string sections just to kind of create a bit of darkness thrown in between all the verses on this thing. There's there's not really anything to speak of in terms of like a, a super strong hook or refrain or anything like that. They're just kind of hitting you with these verses and then throwing these ominous strings in there and then get right back into the verses, which In theory, I don't necessarily mind as long as what lyrically and vocally Killer Mike and LP are delivering is fire. So those are not bad things about the track. It does sound pretty dark. It does sound pretty foreboding. And I I do think that there is something about Killer Mike and LP's lyrical themes and the way that they work together as a duo uh, that plays to... A soundtrack of a movie like this. But that being said, though, Killer Mike and LP, both lyrically and vocally, are are not firing on all cylinders on this track, especially LP. Killer Mike is mostly business as usual, which for Killer Mike is not a bad thing. He sounds like a junkyard dog. The dude's a monster, great energy, Uh, though I do think some of his lines toward the very end are kind of head scratchers maybe they speak a bit more thematically to the film itself and uh, being driven by madness and this will to do evil uh, by this being deep inside you so I guess you can kind of chalk that up again to the fact that this is on the Venom soundtrack and this song I, I'm guessing was kind of written with the movie in mind but still um vocally, it, it is a little underwhelming. LP doesn't really s- sound like he wants to be there. Or maybe he recorded this under conditions where he wasn't really feeling well, uh, 100% or something, because uh, n- not only does he just not sound like his usual self, but on top of it, uh, it's almost like his voice is buried in the mix a little bit too much to the point where it's, it's difficult to read into a lot of what he's saying on top of it. The instrumental, I think could have used a bit more punch, a bit more oomph, a bit more something, because I mean, not only do the drums not hit very hard, like there's not much propulsion to this track. Uh, there is a very mild synth led groove going on. That's pretty slow and lumbering. It, honestly, the pace of the track doesn't sound that much different than a lot of Run the Jewel songs, but what's truly missing out of this track are some booming, heavy, and hard-hitting drums because with, without that to kind of anchor a lot of what's going on, uh, much of the instrumental just sounds really muddy, especially with these weird, sloshy, uh, what sounds like maybe bass synths or something. Like, it's It's not a very good sound. And I don't really think it complements the vocals on the track at all. And it takes up a lot of space in the mix in a really awkward way. Um, and th- there's just nothing really cutting through all of this synth muck throughout this beat. The vocals kind of get lost in it. The drums kind of get lost in it. Those ominous strings pop in. They flood in for a second, but then they disappear. But the strings just kind of create a larger, dronier piece that doesn't really clear anything out. It just kind of creates another sloshy, mucky layer. So the beat, I think, could have been a lot better. It's, it's not a very exciting instrumental, uh, and Killer Mike and LP don't sound very excited to be on top of it either. Um, so yeah, not too enthused about this song, honestly. Uh, though it, it is a one-off track. It is a, a Venom movie soundtrack track. So, uh, can't say I was really like expecting the world out of it to begin with. So, Uh, Yeah, a little let down by it I I really want to hear a great Run the Jewels track Wherever I hear a new Run the Jewels track Unfortunately, this was just not really the place or the time Apparently (laughs) Apparently. This new little Baby and Gunna project It's not good Drip Harder is the new collaborative record From two of Atlanta's up-and-coming voices right now, Little Baby and Gunna. One of them comes from the Quality Control Camp, also known for their associations with Migos and Little Yachty and so on and so forth. The other is on Young Stoner Life Records, which is Young Thug's offshoot. You might remember me mentioning that when I talked about Young Thug's latest compilation project and how many features Gunna had all over that record. To be completely honest, I haven't really thought that much about Little Baby's music or Gunna's music up until this point because I haven't really had much of a reason to. I've heard a bunch of different singles and features from both of these guys over the past year on a handful of different projects, and honestly, I haven't heard a single thing that was worth committing to memory. And because of that, I thought, well, this is just probably a passing phase or a fad, and there's not really much reason to think too deeply about it. Let's just let it run its course, and it'll be what it is. But Now we have this new collaborative record over here. YSL and Quality Control essentially thought, hey, what happens if we put the D-League out onto the court? Well, you get a D-League mediocre record like this. And what's even funnier is the illusions of grandeur behind this project because so clearly this album is trying to be in some way a sequel to the Young Thug and Future Collaborative Project Super Slimy. The cover art is stylized in a similar way. And keep in mind, this is not the original cover art over here. Uh, This is a weird MS Paint type drawing of it because I actually (laughs) legit saw YouTubers talking about this project getting Uh, copyright notices just for showing the cover art of this album. But still, the cover art of this thing, the way that the track list flows and you have collaborative cuts, moments where Little Baby or Gunna will take the track by themselves, a few notable features here and there, similarly shimmery, moody, glistening production. So it's like these guys really kind of see themselves as... What, like the next wave, the new voices, the, the the Atlanta artists who the torches should be passed down to as if they're like the next iteration of a Young Thug and of a future? And I could see that connection to an extent insofar as Gunna sounds quite a bit like Young Thug, as does Little Baby at points. But here's the thing, while I do see vocal similarities between them and Thugger, Uh, neither of them are as creative vocally, neither of them have anywhere near as much personality, versatility. I mean, look, Young Thug, he is a standout artist in my opinion, but also one who is lacking in a lot of departments. But mostly I think that's due to his emphasis on quantity over quality with a lot of his discography. I think that if he really hunkered down and was forced to write some straightforward, super catchy, coherent songs, that he most likely could. Baby and Gunna, on the other hand, I don't think have that ability, not only because they haven't really shown it on their projects up until this point, but also both of them fail to even reach the baseline levels of talent that Thugger has shown on his previous projects. As the beat choices on this album, totally worthless, boring as hell, bland, 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 bland. This is like the most cliched, one-dimensional, uninteresting set of beats I've heard on any project this year. If you've heard a handful of Young Thug or Migos records or a handful of trap albums that have hit the top 40, you've heard these beats before and you've heard them done better. And look, let's face it, on albums like these, the beats carry the songs. The hooks carry the songs. If there's not a great instrumental, there's almost no point in listening to it because it's not like Gunna and Little Baby are bringing great vocals and great lyrics. We all know that's not the case. Let's not kid ourselves. Let's not pretend that these guys are bringing some, some fiery flows. Just listen to Little Baby on the song Deep End. The flows on this track are trash. They're absolute garbage. He has barely any tempo or sense of groove or rhythm or anything on this song. It's two minutes and 50 seconds of slop. Not only that, but his voice is mixed like s on the track too. It totally overpowers the beat. Doesn't sound good at all. It's very whiny because he has a lot of weird inflections, making the track basically sound unlistenable. There's almost nothing aesthetically appealing about it. The songs where Baby is playing opposite to Gunna on this album are at least a little less annoying because Gunna does provide a slight touch of vocal variation as his rapping singing is not nearly as nasally but still even the tracks where these guys double up do get obnoxious because who wants to be listening to two guys in an endless struggle to see who can do the best young thug impersonation and the competition keeps going on and on and on and on because it's always a tie at the end of the track because neither of them are good at it because again neither of them have the command of flow that Thugger does. Neither of them have the vocal range or the vocal personality. I feel like Baby and Gunna have the same exact problem that Designer did when he initially came out onto the scene in that he sounded exactly like Future. But for whatever reason, nobody wants to admit the obvious biting that's going on on this project. I mean, maybe because Thugger obviously approves of this project, he's featured on a track, he has signed one of the artists on this record. The one time that Gunna and Baby collectively drum up a fast, interesting kind of ear-grabbing flow is on the track's biggest single, Drip Too Hard. In a way, I also have to give credit to Little Baby on Close Friends because he at least focuses in on a topic on this track, but here's the thing. How devoid of anything thoughtful, interesting, artistically bold, or standout does this album have to be for the bare minimum of a love song to register as a standout track? And as long as we're talking about standout moments on this album, Drake's appearance on the front of the song Never Recover is actually pretty hard. But if I'm going to compliment this album overall, because there are very few things I can compliment it on, for the appearance of another artist... I also have to talk about what is taken away from this album by the appearance of another artist. And that is Little Dirk on the opening track, Off White V Loan, where he drops a couple of, of interesting lines. One about how she has to suck dick if she's on her period because you have the mindset of a child and you can't deal with the natural functions of the female body. You look at women the same way that toddlers look at broccoli. But on top of that, he says that you can't say no I ain't hearing it. You gotta suck on your period and you can't say no, I'm not hearing it. So we have consent issues as well, which is an even bigger problem, obviously. You have to be painfully lacking in cultural self-awareness to hear this verse and not only think that it sounds good, but think, oh yeah, that's dope. Put it on the record. Well, Just let that slide. And that's the thing with this record in general. I, I, think, I think it's painfully lacking in, in self-awareness because if it were self-aware, it would know that in the grander scheme of things, it's not really that special. It doesn't really stand out with its branding, its titling, and its cover over here. It seems like its greatest ambition is to be the mediocre follow-up to a mediocre collaborative album, which received mixed reviews and only sold a measly 75,000 copies, only 15,000 of which were actual physical sales because nobody wanted to buy this thing. It wasn't good. It was just passable. But unfortunately this record over here fails to even match that bar. As this album is completely devoid of anything that I would call even remotely original or creative, the singing is below average, the rapping is below average, the pen game is below average, the production is mediocre as hell. Like, what is it about this project that's special? I'm really not hearing anything outside of uh, some, some really... (laughs) messed up bars about consent. A Drake feature. The Young Thug feature uh, sees Thugger performing at a higher level than Baby and Gunna, but we already knew that was the case. A kind of fast, somewhat memorable flow toward the back end of the record on a somewhat successful single. I mean, guys, look, I I don't like to think that I'm that picky a lot of the time. I do enjoy a little yachty. I do enjoy a little pump. Like, music obviously doesn't have to be super deep in order for it to be entertaining or connect with me, but... This is just, this is just too little meat on the bone. This is too little meat on the bone. This is just the bone, and it, it's barely the bone. Just two guys with really similar vocal styles trying to copy another guy's vocal style, just warbling away with auto-tuned vocals over the most formulaic trap beats you've heard all year. It's not exactly an exciting pitch. This album, it's My not movie. good. And again, thank all of you for listening to another episode of the Needle Drop podcast. This podcast, like everyone, has been edited and pulled together by the great Jonah. Thank you for him. You can hit up our YouTube channels, youtube.com slash the Needle Drop and theneedledrop.com slash Fantano to keep up to date with all of our weekly reviews and daily content of all stripes. Make sure to keep up with us at theneedledrop.com as well as twitter.com slash drop. And make sure if you get a chance to subscribe to this podcast if you are enjoying it and leave a rating, leave a comment as well. And we will catch you guys in the next one. Anthony Fantano, The Needle Drop Podcast, forever.